thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Given what's at stake, I'd have thought that the profession of restoring old masterpieces would be a highly regulated business. Not so, it seems. Much more often than you think, dodgy restorers manage to persuade galleries and owners to let them loose on famous canvases, sometimes with disastrous results. And even cleaning old pictures and frescoes can be highly controversial. But when it comes to old manuscripts, there seems to be a much stricter protocol for preservation and restoration. The most ancient scrolls provide a big challenge because of their fragility. And here's Professor Tim Weiss of Cardiff University speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast. Will it rain tomorrow? Parchment is skin. It's dried skin that's been salted and limed and stretched and beaten and had hot water poured over it, trying to make a smooth writing surface. And so, you know, I then got more and more involved with samples where the documents had effectively turned from the collagen into gelatin and actually glued themselves together. Thinking outside the box, Professor Weiss went to Dr. Graham Davis specialist in dental x-rays. Tim gave me a number of parchment samples and uh, we just rolled up a small piece, uh, put it in a container, put it in the x-ray system and sure enough we, we could see the ink on it. And it looked so good that when we sent it to Tim he thought we were just, this was some kind of mock-up and I had to say to him, no this is actually reconstructed from x-ray views of it and he was quite impressed then. So next time I need to decipher a Dead Sea Scroller, take it along to my dentist. We're talking about restoration this week, the restoration of pictures and manuscripts, that is, not kings and queens. My guests are the art historian, Dr. Ilaria Benocchi, who teaches at the University of Warwick and is a regular on Naked Reflections, and Dr. Suzanne Paul, fellow of St. Edmund's College, Cambridge, who is the keeper of manuscripts at the University Library, and before that was in charge of the extraordinary Parker Library at Corpus Christi College. Want to know where Nosy Parker comes from? You'll find out later. Suzanne, what sort of techniques have you used in conserving manuscripts in the university library and before that in the Parker Library? So I am a curator, a keeper of manuscripts, but I work very closely with a team of conservators who are highly skilled in the care and restoration of manuscripts. And the principles they operate on are really to prevent before they intervene so that the The first priority of conservation is how can we prevent things from becoming damaged in the first place? The second principle when you do intervene is to try and only do things which are reversible. 
So to use materials that can easily be removed, to use adhesives, which can be removed so that any work you do can be later removed if conservation practices and theories change. And looking after medieval manuscripts, you know, some of these books are over a thousand years old. The oldest book in the Parker Library is the sixth century Gospel of St. Augustine, which is believed to have been brought to England by St. Augustine of Canterbury when he came to convert the English in 597 AD. Now, it's an enormously precious book, but it's actually quite robust. A 1,500-year-old object that you can still turn the pages and still read. But it has been rebound. We put a new binding on it. And conservators will try to use the techniques of ancient times. They do research and they try to use the materials and techniques that would be appropriate to the book as it was originally created. And tell us before we move on, where does Nosy Parker come from? Isn't it to do with the Parker Library? Matthew Parker, who was the founder and donor of the Parker Library. He was Archbishop of Canterbury in the reign of Elizabeth I. Yeah, he's believed to be known as Nosy Parker because he would go around, first of all, investigating the clergy to check that they were in line with the tenets of the Reformation and also what books they had that he might want for his own library. Well, that would be so lovely just to look around and decide what books you want for your own library. And um, Alaria, tell us about some of the controversies around restoring art. And there's a famous example, isn't there, the Sistine Chapel and the restoration there recently? Yes, indeed. So the Sistine Chapel has been restored, reworked over the centuries. At some point, famously, some underpants were added to the figures because they were considered too uh, naked. More recently, in the 80s and 90s, the Sistine Chapel was restored and funded by a Japanese TV corporation. There were several issues with that. So the cleaning, of course, brought to light the very bright, beautiful colours of Michelangelo's fresco. A big part of the controversy dealt with the idea of Michelangelo using a so-called secco technique, which means retouching the fresco with dry paint on top of the plaster. Uh, this is something that painters did sometimes because, of course, the entire point of the fresco and its durability is that it's done very quickly. And when the plaster dries up, it basically imprisons the collar into the wall. That's why it lasts for so long and the colours are so bright. What if Michelangelo, who is known as the master of pure fresco, wet fresco, had used dry retouchings on top of the paint? How do we know that it's his technique? Should we go, should we clean very deeply down to the wall and so to the wet fresco? Or should we assume the possibility that there was some dry fresco, dry retouching on top of it? So that was a big problem because it has to do with the myth of Michelangelo. Uh, working, of course, in a wet fresco is a very difficult, is very challenging. It's something that has some sort of heroic connotation in the way it is described, also by Renaissance sources, because you have to be quick. You are sort of challenged to battle against the wall, to run against time seem to respond to the myth of Michelangelo as a sort of titanic figure, heroic figure in painting. We don't know much sometimes about how painters actually work. Nowadays, the restoration is generally accepted. But of course, there were a lot of controversy. And they have to do with the idea that we have of painters of another time and how they worked, their myth, etc. So it's myth and reality, really? Yes, absolutely. But Suzanne, do you have the same challenges with manuscripts? It's a very different experience with manuscripts. 
I think with art, you have that sense of the artist as the creator and trying to return to the original. I think for manuscripts, which have lived a life, have been altered, have been owned and written in, it's very different. We're looking now to preserve that whole evidence and that whole experience of that book throughout its life, rather than to get back to some kind of pristine original. And of course, that has really paid off now with the kind of scientific techniques that we can use. For example, Professor Matthew Collins and his team in the Department of Archaeology at Cambridge. He's the professor of paleoproteomics. So he's interested in ancient DNA, which of course is found in the parchment of the manuscripts, but also the sense of the microbiome of the book. So everything that the book has absorbed on its pages from the people that have handled it, all the bacteria, all the dirt and the stains, everything that's happened to that book, we can now investigate scientifically. And it tells us all sorts of stories about the life of that book and the society and the people who owned and used and created it. So it's a kind of biography of that book, really, from origins to present day. And, and can you give us an example of what we've learned from that kind of research? So there are investigations going on looking at medical manuscripts from England in the 14th century, which was, of course, a time of the Black Death. So looking, can we identify evidence of the Black Death, of that kind of biology, in the pages of a medical book? That investigation is still going on. I remember with the Pepys diary, there was some discussion because obviously he witnessed the plague, but also the fire of London and some of the pages themselves uh, seem to give evidence of burning and so on. Moving on to archaeology, you mentioned that, Suzanne. I, as a kid, uh, like many, I went to Crete on holiday and visited Knossos. And even at that time, I, I felt kind of, I don't know, disappointed by the vibrant colours. It, it was like a recreation of a almost Disneyland, really. And I don't know if either of you have been to Knossos, but what should we be doing with archaeological restoration? I think it's really interesting with classical statues, because classical statues would have been painted. So if you went to the temple of Apollo or the temple of Aphrodite, the statues would have been very brightly painted. But it looks almost gaudy to our eyes. We're used to classical statues being so perfectly white. But that's our sensibilities. This is absolutely true. The idea that marble statues and even temples, even the Parthenon used to be pigmented, used to be polychromed, would be white is something that started to emerge uh, during the Renaissance and then in the uh, 18th century with Finkelmann, the idea of whiteness as purity, the ideal form in white. Because, of course, if the body of the statue survives and can be excavated, the pigment doesn't. So it's a misinterpretation of the materials. Knossos is, a, is an interesting example. Umberto Eco, the writer, famously wrote that it was at the conjunction of archaeology and falsification because, in a way, it was excavated by Arthur Evans and reconstructed, but many felt that he was pushing in a certain specific direction, while restoration and reconstruction should always be oriented to, to codify, to lock one single meaning 
of the archaeological remains, but to try to imply several meanings and several possible interpretations. So to force the hand is very risky. So perhaps that's the perception, Ed, you had when you went to Crete, that something was very nice finished colored product put in front of you, while the fascination perhaps of ruins and of artworks that are imperfect is that we can guess, we can try to imagine, and we can ask questions about them. So that's the main criticism, perhaps. Alongside that, of course, we've got the politicization of archaeology, and I, I suspect restoration as well, depending on the moment and the ideology and the political circumstance of the time. Famously, of course, we had the blowing up by ISIS of the twin Buddhas in Afghanistan. And in many conflict zones, um, thinking of the Middle East, for example, Israel and Palestine, the claims of who's there longer comes out in archaeological pressure on, on archaeology. Do you have the same sorts of pressures on restoration? I'll start with you, Laria, as an art historian. Are, are there ideological pressures in terms of the painting and the restoration? Yes, absolutely. It depends on the artwork. For instance, with the case of the Buddhas in Afghanistan, the Buddhas of Bamiyan, it's been a 20-year discussion over whether to restore them or not. UNESCO has decided not to do that. Some feel that it would be best to leave the niches empty to remind of what is in fact history, as history as perhaps the Buddhas themselves, so their destruction. So of course there is very frequently, particularly perhaps with religious artworks, a sort of political side to them. You have to think that restoration and reconstructions are operations of interpretation. We try to understand what went on, but sometimes we don't realize we have an agenda. We're trying to see something, we're trying to find out something. And so that's a risky business. Every interpretation can be riddled with our own contemporaneous concerns. So I, I believe there is absolutely a political side to it. How we look at history is always political. How we interpret it, what we make of it, especially when we intervene, because restoration is about doing something to ancient artworks. So the intervention becomes perhaps inherently political or politicised or subject to cultural scrutiny. A risky business, Suzanne? Definitely. As a medievalist, I've been following the different possibilities of the restoration of Notre Dame after the fire. And lots of architects have proposed all manner of different ways of restoring the roof, whether to try and do an identical rebuild or whether to put, you know, some kind of glass and metal tower on the cathedral. And it's such an icon of Paris, of the Middle Ages. It's both political concerns and commercial concerns. You know, the people that have donated money are looking to have a say in what is produced. But as Ilaria said, it's a 21st century interpretation, even if it becomes a, you know, stone by stone, log by log reconstruction of what was there originally. That is still a 21st century enterprise. And if I'm not mistaken, specifically for Notre Dame, the, the spire, which was destroyed by the fire, was also, I think, a 19th century or a late 18th century edition. So the idea of what is the original version is much more complex than it may seem. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Ilaria Benocchi and Suzanne Paul. And we're talking about restoration and preservation. Let's go back to Professor Tim Weiss getting the first X-ray of one of his precious scrolls. The first time that I saw that done, there is definitely, and, and it's one of those moments in your scientific career that sends shivers down your spine for the, for the right reasons. And 
you don't you you know you don't get that many of those in your in your career and and seeing a flattened out document that we could all stand i remember us standing out and we could all read it and then handing that to the paleographer who can then go and interpret that and say what the impact of that is in terms of history is a wonderful you know opportunity to to have and it's great to be part of that that chain Let's discuss palimpsest, and basically we're talking about ancient manuscripts. Is that what we're talking about, Susan? Yes. One of the things I've been doing over lockdown is working on the curation of an exhibition at the University Library in Cambridge called Ghost Words, Reading the Past. The ghost words are words hidden within manuscripts. So a palimpsest is a manuscript where the text has been erased and a new text written over the top. And very often you have the traces of the undertext that is still just about visible. Um, And we have a lot of these manuscripts in the collection. And we've been working with scientists using multispectral imaging to reveal the undertext, um, which is really exciting. I mean, these texts are a thousand years old. For example, we have a manuscript. The undertext has been made up of several different manuscripts, including two very early Quran manuscripts, uh, late 7th, early 8th century Quranic manuscripts. But these texts have been hidden for centuries under another Arabic text over the top, and they've been revealed and painstakingly transcribed um, and made available. And that's really exciting. I think the same applies in the field of art, doesn't it, Ilaria, in terms of painting over images and discovering images underneath paintings? It can happen, absolutely. The art market in particular, uh, 17th century onwards, determined the modification of artworks in ways that we would find surprising and excessive for different reasons. I, for instance, have specialised in a particular type of portrait that is a portrait of a sitter in the guise of a saint or a god. And of course, the funny thing about portraits is that they matter to us just as long as we can very often recognise the sitter. Once the sitter is unknown and the collection is dispersed, uh, these people that nobody can recognise had no meaning. And so they were repainted with the addition of a halo and several objects to make them into saints that could be sold as a sort of a proto-devotional figures and, and, and kept in the house. So this happens absolutely for various reasons. Sometimes we have the artist himself reworking a first version. We call them pentimenti. Repent what you've done. You're sorry for what you've done and you change it. Paintings are a plastic thing. They keep changing. They must be interpreted as objects and not just as the finished image that we see. Very often there is a, a long history behind that. And that makes restoration quite a challenging process because what are you restoring back to and what can you potentially lose as you remove layers of history, layers of story from that object? And how far does one go? I mean, it's not just going back in time. Is it repainting? Is it restoring? Where's the line if there is such a thing? This is a case-by-case consideration. It's a history. So what is the story that we're telling about this particular artwork? What are we trying to do? Sometimes the history that overlaps with a certain artwork is as important, as interesting, as relevant to us than the artwork itself. So sometimes it's best not to go too far in restoring. Other times we're trying to, we're looking for an original, an idea original, and we know how to get there. So we can find a patina, 
We have a varnish that has been added, so it's relatively easy. You can clean that and go back to the original colors. It's a beautiful profession. It's not my profession, but I've, every time I've had to deal with restorers and they have to negotiate so many different concerns. I believe Suzanne must have felt the same. Absolutely. I have such awe and respect when I see our conservators at work. It really is that mixture of art and science, you know, and they're using the most up-to-date scientific equipment, but equally they're using needles and sewing with thread, the kind of techniques and tools that would have been absolutely familiar to medieval craftspeople. And also I think the time frame. I mean, you know, I might write a five-year plan. My conservators are working in terms of centuries. Their work will outlast all of us. One of my conservator colleagues has recently rebound a manuscript for a cathedral library, and it's an 11th century manuscript. It's a thousand years old. The binding that was on it was 18th century. It wasn't working. It was actually damaging the fabric of the book. So it was removed and he put a new binding on it. And that binding will be on that book for maybe 500 years. And just to think in terms of those timescales for your work is, yeah, it blows my mind. It's humbling in many ways, isn't it? Are there moments in manuscript restoration where you come across such a fundamental shift? I'm thinking like the Reformation. We read about destruction of statues, destruction of pictures, figurative representation. Are there examples in manuscripts? Because some ancient manuscripts have these most beautiful, ornate images. Yes. I mean, one example is manuscripts that contain images of Thomas Beckett. So quite often in books of hours made in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, these are kind of devotional, personal books, and they have pictures of saints in them. And often you will find references to Thomas Beckett, images of Beckett have been struck through in the Reformation, because obviously Beckett was martyred for standing up to a king, for defending the church and the independence of the church against King Henry. For Henry VIII, he suppresses the cult of Becket. Becket is not the figure for Henry. So you find in the Reformation that any references to Thomas Becket are struck out. A friend of mine has studied a similar phenomenon in very recent photographs and artworks from the Soviet Union, has found out that very often people were censored by the party or eliminated. Very often faces would be covered in black, but left there as a sort of mark. So they weren't entirely removed. There was a sort of a manifest censoring. The Romans did the same. It was called damnatio memoria, the damnation of the memory. They removed, and, and paradoxically today, we, we know about damnatio memoria and the people they try to cancel because the, the cancelling was so evident. In a way, any operation of cancelling, in a way, excites, arouses our attention and our interest. So he's meant to backfire. So we tend to be very curious about what we can't fully comprehend and understand. So I believe every operation of cancellation of a painting, restoration, destruction of monuments will, in fact, backfire and generate interest. I'm sure most people had not heard of the Buddhas of Bamayan and now, you know, they're world famous. Yes, it's something ironic, isn't there, that the attempt to destroy something and remove it from our culture has actually only added to our interest in what they stand for and what they're about. What about the issue of presentation? I'm thinking of the example of the National Gallery, which added draperies to the picture, the story of the patient Griselda before displaying it. In other words, when you present something, when does that presentation actually impede or interact with the artistic representation itself? 
This is a major issue in uh, curatorial studies. The display of an artwork in a museum may seem something quite straightforward, just hang a painting on the wall or present a statuette in a case. But in fact, once we delve deeper into the history of art, we find out that artworks were experienced in, in many different ways. So they were touched, they were held, they were modified, they were looked under particular lights, under candlelight. And so we're trying to reach a form of display of art that is quite neutral, uh, that does not interfere, but that in itself is a form of interpretation. Again, so this is a phase of curatorial studies that is being debated and maybe will change again. But issues of presentation at the National Gallery, uh, the story of Griselda, of course, there were draperies added to the naked figure of this Siamese panel from the 15th century, if I'm not mistaken, but also Charles Eastlake himself, the first director of the National Gallery, sometimes asked to add a patina, uh, sort of a varnish that would make more beautiful, allegedly, for some paintings, a Sasso Ferrato, for instance. So most of these changes have to do with our idea of beauty. And this is a very, very dangerous terrain because our idea of beauty constantly changes. So it depends what we do with art. If we treat it as a beautiful object, the way it was created, of course, we have the problem of reconstructing that beauty. There is a very famous case more recently at the Louvre of the reconstruction of uh, the noses of a few characters in the separate emos by Veronese, an Italian painter of the Renaissance. And the noses of a few characters were reconstructed in such a way, nose, cheeks and mouths, that critics condemned it as a sort of a nose job. And it's true. I have to say, I've seen the change and the nose is different, the cheeks are different, the figures look younger, they don't look like they have the gravitas of Venetian mature women that were meant by Veronese. So when we let the notion of beauty override any other principle in restoration, that's the risk uh, we run. It's very dangerous. But it's part of the nature of art itself to have both values as a document and as something beautiful that we want to relate to. And does the same apply in your field? Suzanne? We very much have a consciousness of books as things to be used. You know, I work in a library, people come in to read the books. So the artistic qualities are not at the forefront for us. It's the book as an object, as a text. We see quite interestingly damage in manuscripts that has occurred through use. Medieval devotional manuscripts were rubbed, kissed, stroked, and you can see the evidence there's a scholar called Kate Rudy, an art historian who has looked at this, and she shows how the most popular saints, the faces are the most damaged. Those are the ones that have been kissed and stroked the most, and it indicates that they were particular objects of devotion and veneration. Interesting. I remember visiting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and the veneration at the place where Christ traditionally was laid down, having been brought down from the cross, is smooth through the tears, the devotion, the kisses, the rubbing. And you can think of various places where that takes place, not just in Christianity, but in Judaism at the Western Wall, for example. That's quite a challenge for restorers to be honest about the fact that something's been damaged for these reasons without replacing them in a way that could be superficial, I suppose. Yeah, I don't think those are things that you would want to restore because the physical form that it has now tells the story of, of its use, of its significance. So those need to, to stay as they are. But in a book or in a manuscript, of course, I can't read it if it's been damaged by the tears of someone who has cried over a saint or cried over a figure. I think this is where 
digital methods are really interesting, that rather than restoring a physical object, we can, as Alaria was talking about, presenting multiple interpretations, multiple potential restorations. We can do that in a digital form. We can use digital methods to to virtually reunite the pages of a book that have been dispersed, or, for example, to reunite the panels of an altarpiece that are now you know, too fragile to travel. So these kind of digital methods can sort of stimulate our imagination and our thinking and bring a whole new dimension, I think, to the idea of restoration. There is a growing field of digital humanities also in the history of art. And now there are a few very interesting projects that have to do with digital reconstruction of churches. Churches change constantly. Altarpieces are removed, sold, looted sometimes in Italy. Many, many artworks were removed from churches during the Napoleonic invasions and are now in museum and cannot be reclaimed. But the idea that a digital reconstruction can reproduce the looks, the internal decoration of a church at a certain point in history is a fantastic resource for art historians that we didn't have until now. So in a way, through digital means, we can better picture the sort of the changing nature of artworks and maintain that sort of multiple interpretations and multiple meanings. And I think it's a good way of capturing public imagination as well with these spaces and allowing them to experience something of what it might have been like in the past. I really enjoyed at York Minster, very often they use light to paint the front of the church. So you can see that it would originally have been polychrome, but now using a simple light show, you can give people the experience of what it would have been like to see that huge stone face all painted in multicoloured light. There we have it. I'd like to thank my guests, Ilaria Benocchi and Suzanne Paul, for their restorative insights. We'd love to hear from you at Naked Reflections. You can email the Wolf Institute or contact us on Facebook. Let us know what you think of the show and you can catch up our back catalogue or subscribe to our new podcast, The A to Z of the Holy Land from Arab Design, wherever you access your podcasts. You can also find Naked Reflections at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.